The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, power and prejudices. This year, 2024, is an election year in America, a presidential election year. And so we will be doing two podcasts a week rather than our usual one because we want to and because we know you can't get enough Americano in your life. I am very pleased to be joined today by Galen Druk who is host and producer of the 538 Politics podcast, as well as a frequent guest on ABC News and other places. And indeed, we've had him on the Americano podcast before. So, uh, Galen, welcome back. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Great pleasure. We're going to talk about uh, what else? Taylor Swift and her possible role in the 2024 presidential election. And I want to talk to you about this, Galen, not just because... I'm superficially interested in such things, but also because the New York Times, I think this week, reported that Taylor Swift is a is a top priority for the Biden-Harris campaign. They're quite into influencers and they see her endorsement as potentially quite decisive in this election, or that's how it's being spun. And of course, this has prompted uh, much media interest, lots of fury among conservatives who think that she's some sort of sinister democratic operative and that perhaps her relationship with Travis Kelsey, who's a, a tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, who are now going to the Super Bowl, is some sort of op, some sort of sinister op. Oh, boy. Yeah, <laughs> that has um, been cooked up to brainwash gullible Americans into voting for Joe Biden uh, over Donald Trump. It's all quite silly. Nevertheless, it is quite interesting, I think, the subject of celebrities and politics and whether their endorsements count and so on. So let me start with the obvious, Galen. Do you think a Taylor Swift endorsement could be important for Joe Biden, Could, could matter at all? Silly, but interesting. I guess that might be a good way of describing American politics these days. Do I think that a Taylor Swift endorsement would matter all that much? No. But I can elaborate on that. I mean, first of all, Taylor Swift is a known Democrat at this point who has endorsed Democrats in the past. So the idea that it's some big get to have Taylor Swift endorse a Democratic president running for reelection is a little odd to me. I would actually assume that she will end up endorsing and or voting for Joe Biden. And so on top of that, we also have some sense that celebrities can't fix what is ultimately a deep political vulnerability, right? Hillary Clinton had just about every celebrity on the planet endorse her in 2016. And it didn't help at all. Apart from Taylor Swift, sorry, I've got to interrupt you. Apart from Taylor Swift, which some people at the time thought was very significant. Yeah, I mean, that's also a bit silly. So when we have people who loom large in public culture, people will read into them all kinds of things that oftentimes aren't the case. So at the moment, as you described, we have, and I, I, this is Twitter brain, really. I don't think that any Republicans, like normal Republicans outliving their lives, are paying any attention to 
these weird rumors and conspiracy theories about the role that Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey could play in the 2024 election. But yes, people read into celebrities what they want to. And so in a world where a lot of celebrities are sharing their political views and Taylor Swift is not, I think some read into that, that, oh, she must be conservative because it's more often the case that conservative celebrities will bite their tongues more than liberal celebrities. Although I don't know that that's still the case. Increasingly conservative celebrities, especially in, you know, I would say maybe business celebrities or influencers are increasingly sharing their political views as well. So some folks decided to read into Taylor Swift's silence, which is a long running tradition within country music as somehow tacit support for conservatives. That was silly at the time. It proved to be even sillier when she ultimately endorsed Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee's challenger in 2018 in the midterms and encouraged folks to get out and register to vote, which ultimately did seemingly have the impact of having tens of thousands of people in Tennessee register to vote. Yes. So it did bring out tens of, because I mean, uh, Marsha Blackburn did go on and win, but I suppose she probably would have done anyway, but it did have some noticeable impact. Well, also, those are just registration numbers. Yeah. You know, for people who only registered to vote because Taylor Swift suggested that they do, you can imagine that those aren't people who are very politically plugged in. And so there's another question of whether or not they ultimately ended up voting. There's also the question of whether those people would have gotten around to registering to vote, despite, you know, Taylor Swift prompting them to do so by Election Day. I think it's hard to imagine. Taylor Swift is a phenomenon. There's no denying that, right? She is known by just about everyone on the planet, certainly in America. I mean, her name recognition competes with folks like Joe Biden and Donald Trump in terms of how widely she's known. And her popularity is far greater than either of the people running for president as a Republican and Democrat. So to give you some context, Joe Biden's favorability today is net negative 15%. So a lot more people in America have an unfavorable view of Joe Biden than a favorable view. And for Donald Trump, that number is net negative nine. For Taylor Swift, it's a positive 35%. I honestly don't even know if you can trust this polling on favorability views of Taylor Swift. But to the extent you can, I'll just cite here, according to YouGov, you know, 54% of Americans have a positive view of her and only 20% have a negative view of her. Yes. The extent of her fame is extraordinary and the power of it is extraordinary. And I speak as someone who with an eight-year-old daughter knows what they're talking about. And another thing that's been mentioned in this context is that there are now, I think 2024 will have 8 million new eligible voters. Is that correct? Than there were in 2020. And we assume that we'll, let's whatever percentage we assume of those 8 million will vote will be Gen Z people who are or quite a high proportion of them will be people who will have an interest in Taylor Swift. And it is thought that they are more vulnerable. Of course, we're talking in very sweeping terms here, but they are more easily swayed by sort of sentiment on TikTok, sentiment on Instagram. And someone like Taylor Swift can have a big role in that. And certainly the Biden campaign or Democratic campaigns in the past have put some value in these endorsements. And perhaps it's not entirely wrong-headed. Oftentimes, one's own politics are influenced by their cultural milieu. That There's no denying that. And if celebrities are part of that, then that may play a role. Ultimately, I think the 
political, broader national political environment will play a much bigger role than any of these things. We can get to the broader national political environment, but I do want to say that, first of all, the folks that we're talking about who have newly aged into voting are amongst the least likely segment of the American electorate to actually go out and vote. You know, folks ages 18 to 24 are just not all that likely to vote, all things considered. Mm -hmm. On top of that, when you think about a Taylor Swift fan, maybe you think of a Gen Zer, but in fact, you should be thinking of, according to polling from Morning Consult, a white suburban millennial woman. So we're talking actually, I mean, her influence, most impactful influence may not actually be amongst 19 year olds. It may be amongst people who are in their mid thirties and you know, live in the suburbs and may have kids and may have a mortgage and things like that. And so I think sort of focusing on Gen Z is maybe more of like a pop interpretation of who likes Taylor Swift as opposed to a database interpretation of who likes Taylor Swift. Yes, I'm, I'm sure that's right. And this, we'll get away from Taylor Swift, I promise, Galen. But I, just one more thing on this, or just more broadly about celebrity endorsements and politics. I mean, I think uh, one obvious conclusion you can draw is that it has, if it has a positive effect, it often has an equal, if not more extreme, backlash, reverse effect. I mean, I think of 2016, and you're quite right to point to the sort of army of celebrities that supported Hillary Clinton and opposed Donald Trump. And there was this famous concert, I think, in Cleveland uh, a few days before the 2016 election where Jay-Z and Beyonce, Hillary was in the crowd. It was, in theory, a get-out-the-vote concert, but it was very obvious to everyone what the message was. And I remember seeing an interview with some of the people who went to that concert, and I think it was on CNN or something, and and they were interviewing them, and they said, you know, who, who are you going to vote for? And they said, oh, no, we love the concert, but Donald Trump. You know, And so these things don't necessarily work in the way that people think they work. Yeah, I mean, or even I didn't hear those stories, but I heard stories of folks leaving before Hillary Clinton ever went on stage to speak. And so I think that it's hard for a celebrity to fix, again, what's wrong with a political candidate to the extent that whatever messages the celebrities put out enhance the brand that the politician already has. I can imagine that that's more helpful. So for example, Barack Obama was also endorsed by a bunch of celebrities and maybe most notably in the primary, Oprah. So he is symbolic of a sort of cultural shift in America, younger voters, people of color, this sort of what was at the time thought of as this ascendant democratic majority. And so getting sort of younger people in the cultural milieu excited about Obama and speaking in favor of him because that already sort of is connected to the brand that he's pitching himself as is maybe more effective than having like people aren't all of a sudden going to think because Taylor Swift potentially endorses Joe Biden that Joe Biden is like young and hip and with it. It's just there's too significant of a disconnect there Can she influence some people? May well be. But again, like, I think we're mostly being silly here. I would be maybe more curious about the influence that Travis Kelsey could have. You know, I think we are stuck in maybe in the political media, in some tropes that were developed in the early 2000s about voters that may have been true then that are no longer true. So suburban women have been cast as like the ultimate swing vote in American politics. And 
those were the soccer moms, the security moms of the early aughts and late 90s. Today, I think we have data that suggests, at least in the past couple elections, that men are swingier than women. You know, your sort of security mom or soccer mom from the early 2000s is now a Democratic voter and is not considering voting for Donald Trump. In fact, it's sort of maybe white men with a college degree who are a bit swingier and, you know, maybe could be swayed by Travis Kelsey. Who knows? Yes. Well, yes, again, I'm obviously spending too much time on right-wing Twitter, but all I can see is men complaining about the fact he did an advert for Pfizer. But again, I mean, that is Twitter brain, because when you look at the actual data, something like 75% of Republicans were vaccinated. And so, I mean, those are, I'm sure, are not people who are like super excited, like maybe necessarily as excited about talking about vaccines as liberals. But at the end of the day, the people who are on Twitter who are talking about how like Travis Kelsey is a bad influence because he got vaccinated is representative of a vanishingly small percentage of American people. I mean, most Americans were like, I'm going to go get vaccinated and then I'm going to go and live my life. I take that point on board entirely. But uh, something we should talk about is another story that's developing from this election, which is, um, and this ties into what you're saying, you said that men are swingier, but what seems to be happening, particularly among young voters, is a significant drift right among men, while women are remaining consistently left liberal in their opinions. What's your view of this? Do you think it's being overinterpreted? You know, this isn't something that I have dug into super closely, but I have seen the charts that have gone viral at certain points, again, on Twitter over the past year and in recent weeks as well. And I think, particular from the Financial Times, it looks like what has happened in America is a lot of the gender divide amongst Gen Z comes more from young women moving left than it does from young men moving right. So the politics of young men have not changed all that much, while the politics of young women have changed quite a bit. And I think it might be different in the UK. If I remember correctly, those charts actually showed more of a rightward swing amongst young men that was sort of like equal and opposite, more equal and opposite to the leftward swing amongst young women. But at least in American context, you can absolutely understand what might be going on here, which is that in the summer of 2022, Roe v. Wade, the longtime precedent on the right to an abortion, was overturned in the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, which very clearly motivated people. I mean, this isn't something that we have to imagine or philosophize about based on polls. We can just look at election outcomes. You know, I think in large part, backlash to that decision helped Democrats maintain their majority in the Senate and mute any further advances that Republicans may have made in the House. We've also just seen in election after election where abortion is literally on the ballot in the form of a referendum, even in deep red states like Kansas, folks are showing up and voting to keep abortion legal. And so I think that this is probably an issue that would be most relatable for young women. Now, I don't think that explains all of this because those charts reflect shifts in other parts of the world as well. And you could probably tell me better than I could tell you what we're seeing in the UK. And there are, of course, other things going on as well. But I think that could be a significant factor, at least in American politics. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have done their first rallies as 2024 candidates now, and they made abortion front and center of that first rally. I can't remember where it was. Was it in Virginia? Do you think that, as you say, we've talked about this on previous 
podcast that abortion has motivated and is now a motivating issue for Democrats in the way that perhaps anti-abortion was for for Republicans in the 80s and and 90s. Do you think the Democrats might be overplaying abortion slightly because it's not voters' most pressing concern? And when it comes to a general, the dynamics are different. I think you're right that the dynamics are different in a general election. The electorate is very different from a midterm environment. So in a midterm, the electorate tends to be have higher proportions of college-educated voters. And we know from looking at polling that abortion is more strongly motivating for college-educated voters than, say, working-class voters. And so people who are very plugged into politics and the political debate du jour are more likely to turn out in midterms just because a lot of people aren't really paying attention to who's maybe running for Senate, House, or what have you, at least not to the degree that they're sort of forced to pay attention to a presidential election in a year like this year. I mean, we're about to have a 10 and a half month long general election on our hands where not a single person in America will be able to avoid the sort of Trump v. Biden rematch. So the electorate changes. And you're right that when the electorate grows in size and includes more working class voters, economic concerns rise more to the top. Now, I think that abortion, though, it doesn't register as salient as issues like the economy, immigration, or even foreign policy and national security. It serves Democrats, I think, probably to motivate some people to turnout, maybe the young voters that we've discussed, or maybe ancestral Republicans who don't really like Trump anyway, and maybe need something to get them over the edge to turn them out and vote for Biden as opposed to not vote at all. So I think it's one of their sort of electoral tools, but I don't think that it will win them the election. And I don't think they think that either. I mean, they're making a lot of the election an anti-Trump argument, you know, that worked in 2020. Will it work in 2024 when he's not the president? I'm not sure. I think other things are probably more important, like, you know, the direction of the economy, which we can talk about, and the degree of the severity of the crisis at the border. Those will probably end up playing a a very big role. But it's actually important to say this, too. I mentioned voting directly on the issue of abortion. Activists are working to put abortion referenda on the ballot this fall in some battleground states like Arizona, uh, like Florida as well, and others. And that may have a more direct impact than the actual argument. Because in order to get the abortion debate to make you vote for one way or another, you have to sort of sift it through the Trump v. Biden debate. And you can, I think there are voters in America for sure, who support legal abortion and also support Donald Trump. But when it is more literally and directly on the ballot in the form of a referenda, it's sort of clear what the connection is. Yes. And uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think immigration is now coming regularly top of the voter concerns, higher than the cost of living now, which I suppose you could interpret two ways for the Biden administration. The first is that Trump is seen to be tough on the border. Yes, there are arguments about you know him not actually doing anything, but it seems to be a, a failure of the Biden administration that it has not coped with this crisis, which it is now recognising as a crisis at the border. Or you could see it as something that could be good news for the Biden administration because the economy is lessening as a concern. The latest economic data is good. The stock market's been doing very well, which is sometimes a, a front runner of public sentiment about the economy. And the key to Biden's re-election will be how people feel in the summer about the economy. 
Yeah, not to be wishy-washy here, but it really is both. And the numbers bear that out, which I can share with you. So for much of Biden's presidency, the consumer price index was rising faster than wage growth, which quite literally meant that Americans were becoming poorer under the Biden presidency. That switched during 2023 to where wages are now rising faster than prices. And we are seeing that borne out in consumer sentiment data now. I mean, we had a really rapid rise in consumer the university of michigan does regular consumer sentiment polling or surveying and we saw a really rapid rise in consumer sentiment as you mentioned the stock market is up we know that gdp grew by over three percent last quarter which by european standards is like literally impossible to even imagine and we know that inflation is approaching two percent which is the fed's goal. In fact, some of the most high profile things like food, gas, and cars have decreased. So deflation in those markets, as opposed to just the rate of increase slowing. And so that's real. And Americans are reacting to that by being less worried about the economy. At the same time, though, they are more worried about the border. And that's also a reaction to the reality on the ground. So in December, encounters at the southern border breached 300,000, which is an all-time record for most of Biden's presidency. The numbers of encounters at the border have been around 150,000 per month or higher. For some context, that number was only approached once during either Trump or Obama's presidency. So for all of those 12 years, encounters at the border were around 50,000 per month or less. So I think at this point, there's no denying that there is a crisis at the border, and it's starting to be felt by blue city mayors and blue state governors, because for political reasons in large part that seem to have ultimately worked in shaping public opinion, governors from southern states have sent migrants to northern states and northern cities in order to impact the political discussion. And it clearly has, because you now have Democrats talking about a crisis at the border in a way that you haven't really heard them talk about previously. It's in state line in New York right now. It's the mayor of New York City. It's the governor of New York. It is the mayor of Chicago and the governor of Illinois and beyond. And we have now most recently seen Biden say that he wants to reach a deal on border security with Republicans in the Senate. Up until now, Democrats' position has been they only want to increase security at the border. Well, in large part, their position has been they're willing to increase security at the border, but in exchange, they want a pathway to citizenship for some people who are in the country illegally, whether it's dreamers who were brought to the country as minors or what have you. But obviously, the terms on which that debate is being had have changed significantly. So it's interesting what you suggest there about the, this seemingly cynical ploy by Republican politicians to send migrants to Democrat areas. It, has, it seems to have worked, you're essentially saying. Is, is I it, think it's undoubtedly worked. Yeah. I mean, you now have high-profile Democrats talking about not having the resources necessary to care for migrants. You know, people who live in these cities can see the effects themselves from migrants in parts of the city that they're like very familiar with. I mean, you look at Port Authority or Penn Station or what have you in New York City, and it's quite clear that the city is having difficulty providing the resources required for that number of people arriving in the city. And I wonder to what extent people pin their concerns about immigration directly onto Joe Biden and to what extent they pin the possible answer to them on onto Donald Trump. Obviously, there's this political fight at the moment going on where Democrats and sort of people like Mitt Romney are trying to say 
Trump would rather this problem got worse in order to help him get elected. Trump is sort of trying to own that by saying, yeah, fine, blame it on me. That suits me fine. What does the data tell you about how people react to the immigration issue in terms of their voter preferences? So I think Trump has quite transparently said that he doesn't want to give Democrats a win on the border in an election year. Yeah. And we're going to see how that plays out. The Speaker of the House, who's a Republican, Mike Johnson, has said that this Senate agreement, which was ultimately sort of an ask from Mike Johnson and other House Republicans of if you're going to send aid to Ukraine, it has to be combined with a border security deal. He's now saying that that agreement is dead on arrival. We'll see how that all plays out. But in terms of partisan politics, we can look at it this way. Republicans have long been more trusted on immigration and border security than Democrats. There are just certain issues that because of the party's brands, they are more trusted on than the others. So for Republicans, again, it's immigration, border security, national security in general, the economy. For Democrats, it's things like healthcare, education, at this point, abortion. So this sort of plays into pre-existing perceptions of the two parties, which is that Democrats are sort of weak on the issue and that Republicans are more hawkish on the issue. Now, that can be something of a detriment to Republicans if the conversation is about deporting the millions of people, who, many of whom sort of keep afloat the entire country's food system. You know, according to the Department of Agriculture, 50% of farm workers are undocumented, which is to say they're in the country illegally. And according to some organizations that represent farm workers, that number is closer to 75%. So deporting all of those people overnight would have a significant impact on how the country functions. And especially we're speaking during a time where the labor markets are already very tight in the country. So if Donald Trump makes the argument about, you know, deporting 12 million people during his second term in office, that's ground on which he's probably not going to win. But if the argument is we should have a secure border so people aren't just coming into the country illegally or our asylum laws need to be changed so that people aren't abusing the asylum system. I mean, that is an argument that I think Republicans have basically already won. And that's evidenced by the fact that Joe Biden is caving. I mean, this is a sincere political vulnerability. And I think anyone who has looked at European politics over the past decade can't deny it. I mean, Europe experienced its own migrant crisis. And in response, basically every country either elected a right wing government or their left wing government completely switched positions on immigration 180. It's actually surprising to me that it took this long for Democrats and Biden to recognize the severity and the vulnerability of this issue and sort of come to the table and say, we want to do something on border security because it's a visceral issue. And it's it's a very concrete, not abstract one. People can see on the news every night, you know, folks coming across the border. Yes. And uh, last again, I want to ask you about the democratic tactic or strategy of making Trump a big part of this election. People say making it a referendum about Donald Trump. I want to talk to you about this in relation to Nikki Haley's campaign, because I think you could see in New Hampshire, could you not, Trump's vulnerabilities as a candidate? Because obviously the large number of independents who vote in New Hampshire, in all those areas, he didn't do very well. The longer Haley's campaign goes on, I accept that other states are different to New Hampshire, but it's quite useful for Democrats to look at that campaign and sort of say, here are the areas where we can target and attack Trump because you know we can see where anti-Trump animus is quite strong. And in fact, would you say that New Hampshire showed that contrary to polls suggesting Trump's doing better and better, the Democrats are onto a winning ticket with the anti-Trump 
strategy. I think it's hard to say that based on New Hampshire. And the reason is because we have state by state polling of how sort of Trump and Biden are viewed. And views of Biden have held up strangely well in New Hampshire compared to other battleground states. New Hampshire is not like a tier A battleground state, but it is highly competitive. And, you know, for example, had Al Gore won New Hampshire in 2000, he would have been president. So even if it more frequently goes to Democrats in national elections, it's always very close. The reason that Biden's approval has held up so well in New Hampshire and Trump has not really sort of seen the reimagining of his public image out of office through rose-colored glasses, you might say that, you know, he's seen in other parts of the country, is that New Hampshire is demographically very favorable to Biden. It has one of the highest levels of four-year college degree attainment in the country. More than 40% of New Hampshire residents have a college degree. And of course, amongst the electorate, because college Degree holders are more likely to vote. It's even more educated. It is about 90% white. It's one of the whitest states in the country. It is very secular. It does not have like the evangelical religious traditions of many Southern states or even Iowa. And it's the second oldest state by median age in the country. And so old, white, non-religious, college-educated voters are people who love Joe Biden, voted for Joe Biden in 2020, and are still sticking with him. It's, in fact, other parts of the electorate that have softened for him more, like Latino voters in particular. I mean, there's some debate over how much young voters in polling are doing what we call sort of like responding in a way that's more reflective of their their negative sentiment in the moment, but not necessarily how they'll vote. I don't know if I believe that or not. But anyway, young voters is another place that where we've seen softness for Joe Biden. When you look at the other battleground states, I mean, we don't have to sort of imagine this refracted through the Republican primary. We can just ask folks in a poll, if the election were today, would you vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump? And we see that in battleground states across the country, the answer is more often than not, Donald Trump. Like, I think if the election were today, and, and, and nationwide, on average, in head-to-head hypothetical polling, Trump leads by about a point or two over Biden. Now, there are 10 and a half months between now and when that question actually matters, and an awful lot can change. And campaigns do oftentimes succeed at changing perceptions. And we're going to get more economic data. Maybe something will happen on the border. A lot is going to change. But I don't necessarily think that New Hampshire should change our priors all that much about where the country stands. Those anti-Trump voters have been there for a long time. They didn't vote for Trump in 2020. They will almost certainly not vote for him in 2024. But I'm more curious about other segments of the electorate in Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, that aren't the sort of upscale, highly educated granite staters who turned out to vote for Nikki Haley. You mentioned foreign policy earlier, and obviously for Brits and for non-Americans, the role foreign policy plays in the American election is more significant than perhaps it is for a lot of Americans. Nonetheless, national security and foreign policy features perhaps more prominently than we often assume in American elections, and particularly this one. And Donald Trump said we're on the brink of World War III after three American servicemen and women were killed in Jordan. There is a sort of global perception that the world is much more unstable than it has been and that Joe Biden has not been a very good steward, if you like, of the free world. To what extent do you think that's going to be an important factor in in the next few months? 
it's really hard to say because as you know sort of suggested by the fact that our priors are getting updated you know day by day based on even this most recent attack in jordan things can change quickly so if we are in a full-blown war frankly i don't know how that would affect politics it would really depend on how americans view joe biden's handling of it i mean to say if the united states is drawn into something in a more material way obviously there are full-blown wars around the globe already traditionally what we say in political science is that americans react to wars particularly negatively when either lives are lost or treasury is spent in ways that sort of creep into American consciousness day to day. If America itself is attacked directly, that oftentimes creates a rally around the flag effect, which improves the incumbent standing. Now, the rally around the flag effect is in large part a byproduct of the opposition ceasing to criticize the incumbent just because it's a moment of national unity. I honestly don't know if that would happen today in American politics if the United States were attacked directly, if we would have a, a sort of like cease of criticism from the opposition. If things were just to remain as they are today, I think pretty clearly from the polling, both the economy and immigration would play a larger role in Americans' perceptions of the two candidates. There are things around the margin, like people point to folks within the Democratic Party who are to the left of Biden on the issue of Israel-Palestine and the war in Gaza as a vulnerability for him. Not necessarily that those people would vote for Trump, but that they wouldn't turn out at all. I think we'll have to wait to see how that materializes. My assumption would be that that's somewhat marginal, again, in comparison to issues like the economy and immigration. But it's certainly not a non-issue. And we're just going to have to wait and see the the degree of salience as things progress over the coming you know, months. We will wait and see. Galen, as ever, fascinating to talk to you. And thank you very much for coming on to the Americano podcast. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of the Americano podcast. I'd like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Ferroz, and urge you to leave a generous, kind and warm-hearted review of this podcast uh, on whichever platform you listen to it.